Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Eric Satz, founder and CEO of Alto IRA, a company that simplifies and streamlines the process for investors to add alternative assets to their IRAs and retirement accounts in the US. In this episode, we cover Eric's journey from banker to coffee shop owner to venture capitalist to Alto IRA founder. What influenced him to pursue entrepreneurship throughout most of his life? Why he thinks this is now a great time to invest in private companies? The advantages of launching a fintech startup in Nashville, Tennessee? And why he thinks the only thing harder than fundraising for startup money is making somebody laugh? And why he has so much respect for stand-up comedians? This was, without a doubt, one of the most fun interviews I've had, and Eric was just a rock star guest. And finally, it's worth mentioning that Eric is the host of his own podcast called The All Together Show, which I've linked on the show notes. Eric was also kind enough to invite me as a guest on his show a few days after the recording of this podcast. Now join me in an interesting and very, very fun interview with Eric Satz. Eric, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Extremely excited to have you joining us. Can we maybe get started by hearing a bit about your background and how you got to your current role? Sure. So first of all, I think it's important to just understand who I am as a human being, which is to say that I'm a husband and I'm a dad. I actually have a son who is at Penn the School of Arts and Crafts. You know, he's a senior. He'll graduate this year, COVID notwithstanding. And I've got a daughter who is a sophomore at Amherst College and married almost 25 years. And those are the things that keep me busy when I'm not sitting here talking to you on uh, the Warden Financial Podcast. From a professional standpoint, you know, I've kind of always been an entrepreneur. And I grew up in Miami, Florida, selling frozen lemonade out of an unair conditioned van. It was a really simple, straightforward business model. The more I sold, the more I made. And, you know, I sort of took that mindset and that distribution model, if you will, certainly didn't refer to it as a distribution model, but distribution model to uh, Amherst College where I went to undergrad. And I took over the newspaper distribution business on campus. And so I sold the New York Times and the Boston Globe to my fellow classmates. And very similar thing, the more I sold, the more I made. Somehow, I ended up in New York in investment banking really not understanding what Wall Street was prior to getting there. You know, now I consider myself a recovering investment banker. (laughs) Throughout sort of that time, I sort of went away and then went back to Wall Street. And the first time I went away was to start a coffee company. And then I, I went back. The coffee company was the first time I had never actually succeeded at something that I really wanted to succeed at, or or to say it another way, I failed, right? So you and I were talking before the show about financial crises. And, you know, that was kind of like my first financial crisis. Like, do I declare bankruptcy? What does it mean if you declare bankruptcy, right? Just for the record, I did not declare bankruptcy, but worked my way out of that hole. And 
I was in New York at the time and I make my way out to San Francisco where I helped jumpstart Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret, still the greatest investment bank ever to have been. Helped jumpstart that internet investment banking effort, sort of rolled with the entire wave of the internet from April Fool's Day, 1998, when I got out there through 2003, right? And so that was just the boom bust cycle of the internet. And while I was doing that, I actually helped co-found another company, which was a company called Currenex, which became the first online foreign currency exchange business, which we started that in 1999. And State Street would eventually buy that business in 2007 for a whole lot of money. And so that was a good event for everyone involved. And then my wife grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, And so we ended up moving from San Francisco to Nashville in August of 2003. So I've been here just over uh, 17 years now. I'm in my 18th year in Nashville, Tennessee. And when we came to Nashville, we started an online home grocery delivery business called Plum Good Food. And, you know, most people now look back and like, oh, you were so ahead of your time, you know, and it's like, yeah, that and a quarter could buy you a cup of coffee, right? And it doesn't really matter. And the business was actually working quite well until the economy just fell out of bed in 2008, which, you know, we weren't the only ones who were just crushed by that. So many people in America were crushed by that event. So I did the most irrational thing that one could do post that, which was I started a venture capital fund and raised $15 million with the state of Tennessee as our sole LP. And we had been investing in Tennessee-based businesses for close to 10 years, when one day when I was looking to make a portfolio company investment personally alongside the fund, my IRA statement sort of showed up. And it was like that proverbial entrepreneurial light bulb moment where I'm like, holy smokes, I should be using this money, this money that I can't touch until I retire, this money that is tax advantaged, such that, you know, from a risk reward standpoint, if it does really well in an early stage portfolio company over a long period of time, those gains will be entirely tax protected. So I went about figuring out how to invest that IRA money into these portfolio companies, which ultimately led me to starting a company that would make it a lot easier, cost-effective, and scalable, which is how we get to today and Alto IRA. That was a lot. I bet, I bet you're like, I'm going to ask this short little question. And holy smokes, he just riffed for like five minutes. But anyway, here we are. Careful with what you wish for, right? <laughs> no, no, that, that's fascinating. Definitely a lot to unpack there. But I'm curious. So it sounds like you had that entrepreneurial bug very early on, not even lemonade stands, but lemonade van, which I think is a first for me. Where does it come from? Did your parents push you in that direction? Did you have any examples? No, so... You know, my dad is a surgeon and not really entrepreneurial, but my mom definitely exhibited lots of entrepreneurship in her own ways. And I I think, 
sort of proof of necessity is the mother of all I mentioned. I think she was sort of tangible example number one of that for me. I'm sure she wasn't the first to do it, but it was the first time I ever saw it. And quite frankly, I didn't see it again for a really long time. For example, we'd go skiing and my sister, for whatever reason, I don't understand, it's cold out, you know, would like to take her ski gloves off and ski without her gloves on, which is totally bizarre to me. In any event, she would do it and she would constantly lose her gloves. And so what my mom did to remedy that situation was she took some elastic, some long, thin elastic, and she sewed them on either end to her two gloves and then strung her gloves through her jacket so that when my sister would take her gloves off, they might fall, but they weren't going to fall that far because they were attached to one another via elastic and she wouldn't lose her gloves anymore. And I always remember thinking, you got to sell that. Like people could really, even if, you know, even when you're just hanging out and you just want to take your gloves off and not worry about them hanging around, there's something there. And, you know, whereas my mom was just trying to solve a problem, I was always thinking like, well, does anybody else have this problem? Because we could solve their problem too. (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I can, I can relate actually to my own family, some of that. It's interesting, you mentioned raising $15 million in the middle of a crisis to start a VC. We're going through another crisis right now. Do you think this is a good time to raise a VC? I think it's a good time to be investing in private companies. I think it's a really hard time to try and become a VC. And in fact, what I would say is that there's never an easy time to try and become a VC. But I think if we're all thinking about investment opportunities that may be available to us, and you already know that I believe in this, but the opportunities for outsized returns exist in the private investment world in a way that they really no longer exist in the public investment world. By which I mean We used to have 9,000 public companies. Now we've got less than 4,000 public companies. There's no such thing as true portfolio diversification with ETFs, mutual funds, index funds, meaning buying 10 different mutual funds isn't really going to improve the level of portfolio diversification. They're all some combination of the same sub-segment of 4,000 public companies. And I say some combination of the same sub-segment because no more than give or take 400 companies of that you know, larger 4,000 actually accounts for the returns in the market, which means there's no mutual fund manager or ETF manager that's actually looking for the other 3,600 companies. They're all picking some form of the 400, which means they all move together, which means you can expect the same return for all of them, which at one point was maybe 6 to 8%, but today is more like 2 to 3%. And so where are you going to get the return that's eventually going to fuel your retirement? Well, it's in alternative assets. You know, There's a liquidity discount that comes with being in the public markets, by which I mean you are paying a premium and receiving a discounted return for the ability to liquidate your assets on demand. But when we talk about retirement, 
we shouldn't be trying to access our assets on demand. We should be trying to grow them and compounding them, what Einstein liked to refer to as the eighth wonder of the world, you know, over time. And so I don't even know what the original question was, Miguel, but that's what I said. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's, uh, yeah, that's actually a great segue to talk about Alto IRA. Talk to us about, I know it's still early days. I'm sure you, you see it as early days, but talk about the even earlier days when you just got started, you know, launching a fintech and I know it wasn't your first rodeo, but still like doing it out of Tennessee, you know, it's it's not a huge fintech hub. No offense to Tennessee. I love it. I've been there, but, you know, not a major fintech hub. Yeah. You know, so to say it's not a fintech hub may be the understatement of the year. <laughs> but now's when I'm going to put my mayor of Nashville hat on and tell you that for the most part, we don't mind people not thinking as highly of us because we're happy to just sort of gain more yards while you're looking elsewhere, right? But the talent pool here is significant. And you can't become the capital of the world in something without having talented people. And Nashville is the healthcare capital of the world. It is Music City USA. And there's an interesting crossover in the creative class between those who are technologically competent and creative and curious, together with those who are musically creative and competent and curious. And there's way more overlap than you think. It's not that everybody comes to Tennessee to get in music and then they wait tables like they would in New York or LA trying to be an actor. Here, they actually can go into technology or they can go into healthcare or whatever, or health tech if you wanted to. So whereas the rest of the world may sort of kind of find it funny or even difficult to start a fintech business in Nashville, Tennessee, to me, it just makes it that much more interesting and challenging, but also, I know, doable. And so the reason the business was started here was because this is where I live, right? And so when the opportunity presented itself, and when you're talking about $30 trillion sitting in retirement accounts and 150 million different retirement accounts across the U.S., and you've got less than 5% of that being invested in alternative assets, whereas professional managers are investing 25 to upwards of 50% of their portfolio in alternative assets. Well, then you got to be like, why isn't the individual investor doing it? And the obvious answer was actually three things. The first was that most people didn't know you could do it. They didn't know they could take their retirement savings, invest in alternatives. And I think it's probably important and helpful to let any listener know that when we're talking about an alternative asset, we're talking about real estate, we're talking about private equity, venture capital, crypto, marketplace loans. Okay, We're talking about the non-publicly traded, non-registered securities. And so the first thing is that most people don't know you can do this. They think they can only do what Fidelity or Schwab or E-Trade tells them they can do. So that's, that's, that's point number one. Point number two was that investing in an alternative asset can be complicated and it can be overly complicated when you throw it into the confines or construct of a regulatory industry like retirement investing, right? 
And so there's a challenge in how you simplify this process and make it easy for anyone to sort of complete from start to finish. And the third piece of the puzzle was cost or price, right? What historically has been referred to as the self-directed IRA industry, which I like to refer to sort of as a kind of a garbage bag term because it's like saying natural food. Well, what's natural food? Like Anybody can put the label natural food on their product, even if it has red dye, whatever number in it, right? Naturally oh, natural created food. in the lab. Yeah. So <laughs> it's this garbage bag term. Natural food means something different to anybody, which is why we refer to it as the alternative IRA industry, trying to be a little bit more specific about what we're trying to help you accomplish. So the third thing was cost. And so the legacy players, the industry players who are in the space, this opportunity was created with ERISA in the early 1970s, and the legacy custodians hadn't changed their processes since the beginning of time, right? And so it's this heavily people and paper burden process, which by definition leads to high expense. And so the idea for us was to replace all of that with technology that could scale and would enable us to charge people in a way that was both cost-effective for the investor and profitable for us, the same way TurboTax totally changed the way people think about filing their own taxes, right? Use software. Yeah, you no longer have to go hire the accountant to figure out the forms for you right? Or you no longer have to worry that you're going to somehow leave something on the table if you try doing it yourself. And by the way, it's going to take you. I still remember my dad trying to do his own taxes, like take an entire weekend, which by the way, the sort of analogy for the self-directed IRA industry was an investment process that could take six to eight weeks. That's crazy, right? And so we've gotten that down to you know one to two days. That's why we're doing it in Nashville, because I live here, because I identified the problem living here, and because there are a lot of talented people that live around here. That reminds me, we had a Greek fintech on the show, Hellas, Hellas Direct, and they even have some stand-up comedians in their ranks who you know, are great employees, but also are very artistic. Did we talk about stand-up comedy prior to this? Did we talk about that? I don't think so, but we can talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it. So, you know, there's only one thing, in my opinion, in terms of jobs, there's really only one thing harder than asking people for money, like as an entrepreneur, as a founder. And the thing that's harder is making somebody laugh. I swear to God, it's easier to get somebody to give you a dollar than it is to make them laugh. And so I was participating in the FIS Accelerator with the Venture Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, several years back. So I was living in Little Rock for the summer, and a few blocks from my apartment was a combo coffee bar stand-up comedy place. (laughs) It was like coffee bar by day and stand-up comedy improv place by night. And so they had an open mic night once a week. So I went and I did, I wrote a skit and I went and did uh, stand-up comedy for a night. And it was just, I mean, to be honest, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And I actually did this skit, which was centered around the fact that it was easier to get people to give you money than to make them laugh, right? 
So, holy smokes, stand-up comedians, they all, all the respect. That is so hard. That's got to be the that hardest night? thing. I did okay, actually. So there's a guy who was there every week. He was a regular. And he came up to me. So you get five minutes. And by the way, five minutes, that's a long amount of time, right? Way longer than you think. So he came up to me afterwards. He's like, hey, you did a really good job. I said, thanks. And he said, but here's the thing. It took you two minutes to get to your first joke. You got to get there a lot faster. So if we were to draw an analogy between the first two minutes and how you build a new company, prove that there's a problem you need to solve at the outset, right at the beginning. Don't wait two minutes for your first joke, right? You know, make sure that you're solving a real problem. Don't build something that nobody needs, even if it's really cool, right? So his advice was really great. And I just thought about it, not just in the context of comedy, but in the context of what you want to do when you want to build a company. Ah, outstanding. Now, Eric, I have been following Alpha IRA and, and yourself for a while now, and I love something I heard from you a couple of years ago, and which is Peter Thiel hmm. invested half a million dollars into Facebook through this self-directed IRA channel and then made a billion bucks tax-free, right? But not everyone has the means and resources and everything else that Peter Thiel has. How are you navigating this environment? Because you, you must have some pretty big challenges, uh, you know, to navigate regulation, to navigate all, all, the, all the ins and outs. Tell us about how, what's your secret sauce to get there? That's an interesting question. The first thing I'll say is the Peter Thiel example, I think just sort of, it raises eyebrows, it gets people's attention. And it's like, holy smokes, this guy turned. By the way, I've never said holy smokes so many times, like in, I don't know how long we've been doing this, maybe 30 minutes. Usually I just say shit or fuck or something like that, but I don't know what our audience is. So you um, can say anything you want. Right. The lid has just come off, so we'll see where this goes. But the point of the Peter Thiel example, and it used to be the second slide in my original fundraising deck, is it's an attention grabber. And it's like, wait, if Peter Thiel's doing this, maybe I should think about it, right? And actually, the entire PayPal mafia is really well known for doing self-directed IRA investing. And so they're the first, and well, they're no dummies. But the point I would go on to make, which is the one that I think is more relevant for most listeners, is that you don't have to have $500,000 to do this. You can have $500 or $5,000 or $50,000. And the fact is that you get compounded returns that in the case of Peter Thiel, who used the Roth IRA, are tax-free upon withdrawal. Or in the case of a traditional IRA, it's just tax-deferred. Right. But again, 500,000 to a billion is, I don't know how many X, maybe it's, was that 2,000 X return? I don't know what it is. But the point is, you can get that with a $500 investment on Republic or WeFunder or AngelList, or you can get it with a $5,000 investment. It really doesn't matter. The returns in terms of IRR or in terms of multiples are still the same. And that's the takeaway 
I ultimately want every individual investor to understand, which is we built a platform such that you no longer have to invest six figures to take advantage. You can invest three figures and take advantage. And by the way, it may just be $100, right? But the fact is that if you build a portfolio of these opportunities, the power laws are in your favor such that you can achieve those outsized returns. That's the important thing. And since you got started, there's actually been some progress in the industry, right? I mean, recently I understand that the Department of Labor created maybe a bigger path for 1K plans to offer private equity investment options. What are your, how are you navigating this? What are your thoughts around, around recent developments? We're going to have to go back a few years, actually, to fully set the entire kind of macro landscape or environment that we're talking about, which is the SEC passed the JOBS Act and Title III and Reg CF. And Reg CF stands for Regulation Crowdfunding, which opened the door for non-accredited investors to participate in private equity opportunities, private companies, any stage which had never existed before. And so the idea with Alta was, you know what, the macro wins are at the backs of broadening access, expanding access, democratizing investment opportunity. And if we could build the technology that would enable almost anyone to participate, well, then we could build a big business. And as luck would have it, and I do think you have to be both lucky and good in the startup world, for the first time probably in a lot of people's lives, they realized in the last six months, despite what's happened in the last three months, that the stock market actually works in both directions. It doesn't always just go up. It can go down, and it can go down by a lot. And I'm not really a public market guy, so I'm not here to talk about what may happen with the public markets over the next 12 months. But there has been this recognition that investing in the public markets is not a quote unquote safe play, right? And if what you're going to do in order to protect yourself is to diversify, well, then you need true asset diversification, true portfolio diversification. And that, by definition, includes alternative assets, includes real estate, includes private equity, venture capital, crypto, whatever it may be. The next thing that the SEC just did is to change the definition of what it means to be an accredited investor. And they're also enabling people to, quote unquote, test in to that definition. So it's no longer going to be just a net worth or current income test, but it's also going to be a knowledge test, which is the way it should be, right? So if you can go study and you can pass the test, then you too can be an accredited investor to make your own alternative asset investment decisions without limitation. I think the next step, and now I'm coming back to your opening question, you know, the Department of Labor said that 401ks can participate in private equity funds. What they didn't say was that individuals in 401ks could participate in the funds. They said the administrator could participate in the funds. It wasn't enabling just a, a straight investment on any individual's part 
into a private equity fund, there were bells and whistles surrounding it, and it had to be part of a broader time-based play. Can we get to that place where they allow individuals to opt in on their own? I think we can. More importantly, I actually think the SEC got it backwards when they said, now individuals can invest in private equity on their own. The first thing they should have done was said, hey, now you can invest with professional fund managers and let the fund managers build the diversified portfolio, right? That I think would have been the appropriate first step. So I think we're doing it backwards, but I do think that should be the next step where we say, okay, we've already given individuals the ability to go out and try and build their own portfolio. Now we ought to give them the ability to pick asset managers that they like to build portfolios for them. So how about your business? How has it performed during this major crisis over the last six, seven months? Really well. (laughs) So, I mean, we're doing record month after record month. And so this month over last month, we've grown 25%. Really? No, that's that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. To the right is is definitely the trajectory you want. And how do you how do you envision the business going forward? I know that you're partnering with fintechs. You know, not just traditional players, but also with fintechs. I know you have some integrations. What else is down the road? In terms of immediate alternative investment opportunity for anyone. And by the way, I'm not telling anyone to do this. I want to be just crystal clear about that. But if you're looking for a diversification play and you're not yet accredited, you can invest in crypto assets. Of course, the most popular, which is Bitcoin, you know, sort of closely followed by Ethereum. And we do have an integration with Coinbase that allows you to trade directly from your Alto IRA account on the Coinbase exchange and gives you an ability to begin to experiment with what it means to diversify your portfolio. And the other thing I want to be clear about is that in no way are we suggesting to anyone that they take their entire retirement account and go sort of what I would say bet it all like on one investment opportunity. Yeah, like if that's what you want, go to Vegas and play craps or whatever. It doesn't work that way or it shouldn't work that way. What we're saying is take 10 to 20% of your retirement portfolio and diversify. And similarly, you don't take all 20% and put it in one thing. You want to diversify across a number of different assets and potentially asset classes. And so if I wanted, let's say one of my classmates graduates and goes off to work, let's say to a fairly large company, right? And they want to sell direct some of their IRA dollars. Can they go directly to you or do they need their company to partner with you? We are in conversations with several different administrators today to see how we can add what's called a brokerage window to a 401k plan that would allow you to self-direct a part of your retirement savings. That's a longer process. The good news is that for the first time, I think since the beginning of time, and this happens just a couple of years ago, IRAs finally surpassed 401k accounts in terms of aggregate balances. And that's because people don't work at 
the same place as long as they used to. And every time they move, they take their 401k and they roll it into an IRA that they control. And so no matter where your IRA is, whether it's Fidelity, Schwab, E-Trade, pick a, you know, pick a broker of choice, if you want to self-direct, you can create an Alto IRA account and just transfer cash to make your alternative investment. And you can do that an unlimited number of times when you're transferring from IRA to IRA. Got it. Got it. Now, Eric, we have quite a few listeners who are either young, starting entrepreneurs or also aspiring builders. Obviously, you've talked a lot about entrepreneurship and what it means to be a founder, but do you have some reflections, some lessons that you'd like to share for those would-be entrepreneurs tuning in? For a few years, not this year, obviously, I taught what we called the few. And I didn't come up with the name, by the way. The class came up with the name. And the few stood for Future Entrepreneurs Workshop. And it was high school students from five different schools in Nashville would come one night a week for two hours. And we would, uh, A, talk about entrepreneurship, and then B, play out business plans and models that the students would come up with. And if ever you had any doubts about the future of what this country can be and should be, start an entrepreneurship class with a bunch of high school students and just listen to the ideas that they come up with and what it is that they want to accomplish. And like, it'll just totally change your mood. You will be completely enthralled with and positive about what the future for this country can and should be. So in any event, the first thing we do is we talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur. And if what you think it means is to make a lot of money, like stop right there. <laughs> okay. It doesn't work that way. For those who, who do end up making a lot of money, that comes last, right? And you can't be an entrepreneur and you can't make it through every sort of peak and valley cycle that comes with doing that. There are far easier ways to make a lot of money than being an entrepreneur. So if that's your goal, go do something else, right? Go to school and get paid for doing that thing that's going to make you a lot of money. Don't be an entrepreneur. The next thing I would say is that you really do have to be passionate about the problem you're trying to solve. And it does need to be a problem that needs to be solved. <laughs> you can't be solving a problem nobody has. Because it is so hard to do this, you A, have to have that passion and grit or resiliency or whatever other word we are now talking about, which means you can just sort of gut through it. You have to have a support system. And especially if you're married or in a relationship, your partner has to be 100% on board with whatever it is you're doing or it's not going to work either. You both have to know what it is you're getting into. Be passionate about the problem you're solving. Make sure it's a problem that people have, and then make sure your support system's in place. And then hire people smarter than you. Love it. Well, Eric, before we go, we always like to ask our guests to talk a little bit of maybe about their hobbies. And then maybe you could tell us how you spend some of your time outside of work or any professional commitments. You know, maybe can share some of those hobbies. 
it turns out that I'm a competitive person. And in terms of talking about entrepreneurship, I do think it helps to be competitive. I hate to lose far more than I hate to win. I don't know if that's a good trade or not, but it's a trade. Look, I've played soccer all my life. There's nothing I enjoy more in life than skiing. I play tennis. I used to go to yoga when we weren't in lockdown at COVID and hot yoga, vinyasa is something that I love and haven't been able to do and miss terribly. We'll do the Netflix binging, my wife and I, right? And watching shows we haven't seen before. And we'll watch shows that we haven't seen in a long time. So we watched The West Wing again from beginning to end. Such a great uh, show. It's a, such a great show, and uh, which led us to watch The Newsroom, which is another Aaron Sorkin masterpiece, in my opinion. My wife, who is a voracious reader, and I don't know how she does it all. Every once in a while, she's like, you have to read this one. And so like, I'll read that book. But otherwise, everything I'm reading has to do with what I do. Not because I have to. It's interesting to me. So that's where I spend my time. <laughs> Definitely sound like a very active guy. And I'm so glad you joined us on the podcast. By far, one of the most entertaining conversations we've had. And, and I really hope that uh, this lockdown period or, or this whole situation ends soon so I can stop by uh, Nashville. It would be a pleasure to stop by. I would love to have you come to Nashville, but before I let you let me go, I want everyone who's listening to know that we're going to turn the tables in two days and Miguel's going to be on the All Together show and I'm going to be the host and he's going to be the guest and we're going to learn all about Miguel. And so people are going to have to tune into that. That is true. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. No, thank you, Eric. Uh, outstanding. And congratulations for everything you've done. And I'm sure there's a lot more to come from uh, the Alto IRA team. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our Fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.